Hey, my name is Akash Thakar, and this is Sound Business. This is the podcast where we dive into the mindsets and methods of some of the top musicians, sound designers, or audio creators in the world. We're going to interview everyone from plug-in makers, performing musicians, video game composers, and everything in between, and learn how they run a successful business and how they're making a killer living in the worlds of music and sound. My hope with this podcast is that you can be exposed to the many myriad different ways there are to make a killer living in the worlds of music and sound, and help you realize that there's no one right way to get to the top. And with that, let's get into the episode. My guest today is Amit May Cohen, who's a composer based out of Los Angeles. Amit has worked on projects such as Zombies 2 and 3, Hobbs and Shaw, The Dream Life of Georgie Stone, and many others. In this episode, we're going to dive into her journey to becoming a film composer in LA, her growth as a musician over the years, how she recommends new up-and-coming composers break into the world of composing, especially if they're working in the Hollywood scene, and so much more. So without further ado, let's get into the episode with Amit May Cohen. So we'll start with the first question. And that revolves around your mom telling you that film composing was even a thing in the first place because you would watch movies or watch shows and just kind of get absorbed into the music. And I want to hear about this kind of revelation. Ooh, cool. Okay. I love that question. Um, yeah. So I was, you know, an only child to a single parent. So my mom worked for many hours and I had a lot of time to kill. That was before TikTok. So, <laughs> you know, I had to be like creative or something or see friends and I hate people. So, you know, being creative <laughs> is the only option. <laughs> so I really loved reading books and I used to just find like scenes from a book that I like and I just started writing music to that, trying to describe the scene or the emotions of the character. Then it became like, you know, any story that I had in my mind and I just had to put that on the piano. And sometimes I would call my mom during her work hours and I'd be like, yo, yo, listen to this, putting her on speaker, you know, and <laughs> like, what feeling do you get from that? And she's like, well, I'm at work, but <laughs> I feel happy. <laughs> That's so cute. Yes, I was adorable. Thank you. <laughs> and then, you know, in, in the weekends, I would also like do the same or whenever she's home, I just like show her stuff. And then it kind of didn't stop. And I think when I was like 12, she was like, well, you know, there's like a job for that and it's called film composing. So she did some digging. I think she was the one to find like Berklee College of Music and that they had like, you know, the degree for that. And I'm pretty sure at the time, like Berkeley was the only place that had an undergrad degree. So like it, it kind of became like a dream of like, okay, I got to go to Berkeley to study this thing so then I can make money. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that's kind of how it started, the snowball. Mm -hmm. But you didn't go to Berkeley, you know, first, right? That wasn't the first school you went to. So tell me about that kind of transition. So well, I started from playing piano when I was like eight. And then I fell in love with like alto saxophone when I was like 10 or 11. And then I quit everything and started playing guitar. And um, I had like, you know, two months of being like, yo, rock and roll. And then I fell in love with West Montgomery and jazz. 
all of that while I'm still like in love with film scoring, obviously, but I love so many things. So I auditioned to this like private high school that specializes in like six different majors. One of the majors is jazz and that's like intense studies uh, for jazz. And I got accepted on the guitar and that allowed me to study arranging and ear training the history of jazz, all of that, and also using a lot of books from Berkeley. So it kind of was such an ideal transition of like going to Berkeley from that high school just made sense. So I had like a very in-depth studies in jazz. At the same time, also, I really loved gypsy jazz. So I found like, you know, a teacher outside of the school to... uh study that play that and I was also like the weirdo that always talked about like <laughs> film scoring and you know saying the kraken you know anyway so after I think my last year in that high school I auditioned to Berkeley and I got a scholarship uh, and then the year after that I just went to Berkeley it just made sense yeah that does make sense but there's a uh technological gap right because a lot of people who go into you know jazz or classical music that sort of stuff they don't usually get exposed to like DAWs and the technical aspects of film scoring so that came later for you right oh totally I was sure that people like score movies directly to finale because <laughs> when I I think I was like 15 or something my mom surprised me with like a finale Aww. CD she didn't know that I, I had the hacked version. <laughs> but I was like, oh, wow, thank you. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> and the coolest thing about that software was that I could import a video and mute it and sync it. And I was like, whoa, that's how people do that. So I downloaded Edward Scissorhands as one of my favorite movies. And I muted it and I wrote my own like you know music to certain scenes. And I was like, whoa, that's how Danny Elfman did it for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so then when I came to Berkeley and they were like, here's a DAW. I was the fuck is that? <laughs> no. <laughs> so yeah, my mock-ups were like awful and all of those things. But um, I think in a way it was kind of luck that because I tested out of so many like of the jazz prerequisites, I had a lot of time to kill. So I just like signed up for another major, which was the uh, CWP, Contemporary Writing and Production, thinking like, yo, I will learn how to produce like pop music and I will learn technology and definitely write on the technology. Like that major totally taught me how to like build my own studio, like home studio, you know, use your own like small tools. You don't have to just be in like a million dollar worth studio and whatever. And definitely taught me more production. So when I finally started film scoring, then I was like, I knew several different DAWs. I knew virtual instruments much better than some of my peers. So yeah, I feel like that was luck, but also a smart move. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel that your time at Berkeley exposed you to other things that you didn't know about? Like, you know, when you came in, you saw DAWs and you're like, what the hell is that? Are there other things that gave you that same sort of moment where you're like, oh, what the hell? Oh, Yeah, definitely. Because, you know, Berkeley is like such a unique place in the sense that all the genres are there. It's insane. You know, you go in and you just like, whoa, <laughs> it's wonderful. <laughs> and I wanted to try everything. And I think like... 
even certain things that seemed very boring to people, like the prerequisites of concert music, like a counterpoint and uh, it was called a contemporary writing. So it's like not contemporary, it's from a hundred years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, whoa, this is actually really freaking cool. So I actually asked my contemporary composition teacher if she does private lessons outside of college. Her name is Ala Cohen and she's actually like an amazing composer and she did teach a lot of private lessons outside of school. And what I didn't know is that her private lessons are way more like deep dive into contemporary, not minimalism, but very like Arnold... Um, Schoenberg? Arnold Schoenberg, thank you. <laughs> Somebody needs another coffee. <laughs> so yeah, definitely like deep dive into the 12-tone Arnold Schoenberg. And we did very weird exercises that like, she didn't teach that in the, the general studies that we had in the Berkeley classes she did. One of the assignments she gave me was like, okay, here are five notes, come up with a a piece of music with five notes, but your phrasing needs to be three bar, four bar, five bar. That's the piece. And it's like, okay, how do you write a melody? Well, you know what? I think we even started from like just three notes or four notes. And then every lesson we increased it. So by the time we were like, okay, you can use like all of them now. Then I was like, that's too many. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's one of the things that I did there. And then, you know, I had a lot of friends that like were jazz musicians or great musicians in general in all styles so i started my own band i had like a 12-piece band and then at some point i added some singers to that just for fun and that lasted for a year like we did several shows that was really great and definitely tried different styles to learn that like i also don't like them but just to try them because why not yeah yeah so what do you have to say about like specializing then because some composers think they need to master every single style under the sun before they can do anything. And some think, oh, I'm just going to do this one thing and that's it forever. Where do you kind of fall on that? I think that's very personality based. Like my personality is like, I don't want to say I get bored quickly, but I get bored quickly. <laughs> Maybe it's because my ADD, I don't know. But uh, <laughs> like, I just feel fulfilled when I try a lot of different things, even at the same time, you know, like if I do like a, a comedy and a thriller back to back or at the same time that's wonderful for me and i don't know so that just fits me but i feel like some other people just you know if it doesn't fit them then that's fine but i think i was afraid in berkeley to like start taking like student films outside of school because i didn't feel prepared because i was like oh i don't i don't know film scoring enough i don't know how to do this like, drama yet blah 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 that's maybe one of the things i regret not doing while being a student because at least if you fuck up you can say oh i'm still a student so <laughs> totally <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah you're 100 safe you have that fallback in college to just try stuff yeah no you have no excuses now <laughs> You suck, you suck. That's yep, it. Yep, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> but you were able to, after Berkeley, go and move to LA, do the film composer route and start assisting people. And that's a common route for a lot of film composers is to do the kind of assistance ship sort of thing. And can you talk to how that even comes up for film composers and how you find those opportunities and what they were for you? Yeah, I mean, I don't know how it happens 
for other people. I heard a lot of like, you know, a friend work in this place and then they bring their friends and blah, blah, blah. So yes, friends can give you work. For me, what happened was that, okay, so the chair of the film scoring department at the time was George S. Clinton. And I used to go to his office hours and he became some sort of like a mentor while he was the chair. I didn't have any class with him. I just thought he was a really cool guy. So he and I got to know each other and then he left the department, moved back to LA. And then six months later, I moved to LA and he offered me to be his assistant. Now at the time he wasn't too busy. So I was like, I needed to fill my time and like pay my rent and all that. So I happened to also get an internship opportunity for Chris Leonard's. But there was a composer that rented a studio in that building and he needed an assistant. So I ended up after three days quitting that internship and switching to that other composer. So then I was working for him like five days a week and then on the weekend working for George. And then, you know, found any short film that I could, paid or non-paid, but um, ideally paid. (laughs) So that's kind of how it started for me. But it snowballed, like I didn't stay in that full-time position for very long it was just for like one year then it didn't work out so I, I quit that and I became an additional orchestrator freelance from home and then also on call for George so whenever he would call me I would just like not fully drop everything but yes drop everything <laughs> and then like come back home and, and do the the other stuff I was doing And there's a lot of moments of uncertainty in basically every creative person's career. So can you talk to me about how you dealt with those moments where you didn't know where the income was coming in or how you'd pay rent or anything like that? Well, I definitely cried a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, honestly, I, I worked for like a lot of different people at the same time that they all needed somebody on call and like part time. And one of the weirdest jobs that I've had, I was supposed to do orchestration for this woman that it ended up being like a personal assisting like once I started it was like oh no I actually need to do personal assisting okay and then the personal assisting became like feeding her birds because she had like (laughs) birds I baked muffins for birds but it's still I I, listen every time I had something like that I just told myself you know what my autobiography is gonna be fabulous oh, man. so it's just one for the books <laughs> but you know I had to do that to, to, to pay the bills because there were really sometimes big gaps between like my project with George or the orchestration stuff until things picked up and I actually didn't have any financial support from my family like if I wanted to maybe I could have asked but I just really didn't want to ask anything so you know I lived in a super cheap apartment in Van Nuys which allowed me to like you know have free space to be a freelancer and do a lot of different things had I not had that I would have probably had to like quit all of that and find like a full-time position that that paid But I think that what I learned is that that didn't really fit my personality because I love doing so many different things at the same time that that was the best choice for me, you know? And it was very hard and I was very stressed about how do I pay my bills every month, but I I think that's what I needed to do. Mm, Okay, that makes sense. And when you were kind of 
wrapping up these assistantship positions, how did you know when it was time to fly free and do your own thing? And was that scary or was it super easy? I think what what happened was that in 2017, George was composing the TV movie Zombies for Disney Channel. And I was his assistant on that. And then 2019 came and they wanted him to do the second movie and he brought up the idea that I will co-compose with him. So that's kind of, I think that's what really started the, uh, you know, I mean, he's starting to compose shit. <laughs> After that, I had an opportunity to demo on a Disney Channel slash Disney Plus show because it was kind of similar producers. So they're like, oh, let's, you know, have a meet demo on this. And I got it. And I think that's what really started the like okay i maybe maybe i can do this so that is already 2020 but then there was the pandemic then i went backwards because the show never ended up happening and i'm assisting i'm doing orchestration at that point i think i'm realizing like i'm kind of frustrated with orchestration because it's not as creative as i hoped it would be you know like they tell you in school orchestration <laughs> oh they give you a piano skit and you just like you know explode it like that sounds really fun but like in reality it's not what it is that's arranging so i'm starting to be a bit frustrated but i still gotta do it for you know money and then 2022 i think we did zombies three and then at that point, I already have an agent, and after Zombies 3, I did a show, a documentary series with my friend Dara, and then I'm doing like, you know, a documentary for Netflix and all of those things. So that's kind of how it started snowballing. So I think sometime between Zombies 2 to Zombies 3, George and I had a conversation of like, okay, I think that... I'm kind of done with the phase of like being your assistant. And honestly, George brought that. Like, I think that I wouldn't have said anything because I just love working with him. But he was the one to be like, okay, I think you're done with this. My my goal here is complete. You know, we're going to do Zombies 3 and then you're on your own. Unless there's another movie, you know, that he has. And if he wants to do it together, then obviously, like, I'll come and help. And and that was the the... First conversation he had with me when I started being his assistant was that his goal for me was that I would be so busy as an independent like composer that I won't be able to assist him anymore. That is the sign of a very good boss. And you mentioned something earlier that I think is funny because you're one of the friendliest people I know. You said you hate people, uh, which I don't think is true <laughs> because you're so friendly. Nah. <laughs> but you have to kind of... Talk about the side of this where so many people are involved and you have to talk to and meet and engage with so many different people in your field and outside of it. How did you navigate that in a city as big as L.A., especially when I assume you moved there and barely knew many people? Mm, yeah, I think, well, I didn't know who's in town from the people I knew. Lucky for me, like the Berkeley community here is so big. So there's like a lot of events, you know. So that that was nice at first. Then there's the SEL and all of those like composer gatherings. So I used to go to a lot of those at first. George also 
knows everybody in town. So every time he would go to an event, he would bring me and introduce me as his assistant. And then everybody's like, whoa, she must be really <laughs> awesome because she's George's assistant. And then that's, I, honestly, that's the best way for, was the best way for me to like be introduced to a lot of the people in this industry. I think the, 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 how do you talk to so many different people? Like I'm still learning that. I think you definitely, every time you go to an event or something, you got to read the room. Um, which is true for every situation you're in, especially in this city. And then, um, I don't know how to answer this question. <laughs> Let's do a different one. <laughs> Sorry. No problem at all. I don't know, because I just like go and talk. But <laughs> That's a perfectly good answer. <laughs> <laughs> so when you are kind of in this phase of like leaving the assistantship and getting agents and managers and all that sort of stuff to get to that next level of your career how did that kind of come about for you because you know you'll hear people say oh sit back and just wait for an agent to contact you or you know if you're really really good you're gonna get discovered or something along those lines but how did it work for you right it's another one of those things that george threw me into because he was having a lunch with like his first agent and i guess he mentioned that we're doing zombies 2 together or that uh, it just mentioned my name. So then the agent was like, oh, send me her reel and I want to meet her. So I definitely like was not prepared to have an agent. I didn't think I'm good enough yet, but that's a story for a different time. <laughs> but <laughs> And I just ended up, you know, I sent him whatever I had. I had a meeting with him. Obviously, he didn't sign me because my music was just not as good as like his clients and it just wasn't you know, at the level. Uh, and also the independent projects that I was offered at the time or going after at the time, they were just not like big enough to spark his interest. So it was, you know, a nice conversation that definitely started like my interest in potentially finding an, an agent at some point. Or at least the idea that like, this is something that could happen. You know, it's like, it's not that far off for you, Amit, to find an agent. And then George again introduced me to like a different agent, a junior agent from a different agency. And we both ended up going to like Sundance Film Festival in 2019. So we sat down for a beer, had a great conversation. He sent me out on like two pitches, non-officially, you know, I was able to call him one time when I needed just some help with like a contract for an indie film that I did. And we're just, you know, we became friends from that, but nothing like official became from that. And then when I got the Disney show that never ended up happening, I needed an agent to do my contract. So George called his agent. She actually put a good word for me because when the, when we were demoing, because George told her that I'm demoing and she was like, oh my God, I know the producer. So she put in a good word. I want to believe that I still got the gig because my music was amazing. But anyway, uh, <laughs> it was blind testing. <laughs> so after I heard that I got it, I called her and I was like, can you please help me? And she was super into helping me. And from that point, she was like, okay, I'm your agent from now. So yeah, let's, let's do this. We, I didn't sign any, you know, paperwork or whatever. So maybe it wasn't the most official thing but she still like sent me out on pitches every once in a while she did a few other contracts for me 
Unfortunately, she passed away nine months after we started working together. So I didn't get to know her as well as I hoped that I would. But she was a very big name in the agency world because her client base are like A-list people, you know, like Brian Tyler and Ramin Jawadian. A lot of really big names. So after uh, a few months, I decided to start looking again. And I reached out to like the agent friend that I made a few years before that. And I was like, hey, so I've been working with her and I, I need somebody new. And I feel like saying that to him or to other agents that I talked to, it kind of opened up a lot of doors because they were like, oh, you worked with her. That's amazing. Like she, you know, she's a big agent. So like, you must be good. <laughs> so I had, you know, very good interviews at that point because her just her name opened up a lot of doors, even if it wasn't like the most official working rela relationship, you know. And what ended up happening, the agent that I did find, a friend of mine was like an assistant in the in craft angle management. And she, I just had a catch up Zoom with her. And she was like, let me like introduce you to this guy before you sign with anyone. So I was like, okay, I'm definitely in my mind signing with like somebody that I already talked to. And I had a really good conversation. And then um, the phone call with John Clark from Craft Angle was just such a good phone call that I was like, okay, this is it. That That's the guy. Let's do this. And it definitely was like just a, a feeling based on, you know, how the call was and how our personalities were just like worked well, you know, like I felt like, okay, this, this is the type of personality that I can definitely work with or I want to work with you know and we talked a lot about music rather than just business on that call and like I'm a very creative person so it it worked really well for me you mentioned something where you said you know when you first kind of started talking to these agents maybe your music wasn't at that caliber yet and there's two kind of aspects to it there's sometimes there's the truth where it's like, ah, my music genuinely isn't good enough. And sometimes there's imposter syndrome. So I'm curious in two ways. One, how did you improve over time to make it so that your music did hit that caliber? And two, how do you deal with imposter syndrome? Or I'm sure maybe you got rid of it a long time ago and it never has come up ever since. Oh my God. I mean, I think everybody always have imposter syndrome, like all level of composers. I think that... um how I improved it, I'm still improving it. Like, I think my music sounds good now, but like, there is always, you know, ways to improve. I feel like when, when you stop learning or improving, then you're doomed. So never say like, okay, I'm done. I'm good. I think that's something that definitely helps with feeling like you're working on your imposter syndrome. I think the best thing for your imposter syndrome <clears throat> is getting gigs. Because <laughs> then you're like, oh, okay, wait, wait, wait. I got it, I got it. So maybe maybe I'm good. But then, you know, you're done with the gig. Then you're demoing again. You didn't get something. Then you're like, no, no, I suck, I suck. <laughs> it's definitely, I don't know, it's like a yo-yo. <laughs> <laughs> and is that how you kind of improved is through those gigs as well? You just kind of try new things on each project? Yeah, definitely. Because for me, every gig was like, I think it's normal, like every every gig is like a different genre or a different style, whatever. And uh, you have to just adjust yourself and your production skills or composition and whatever to what's in front of you. So that 
makes you grow as a composer. And I feel like, you know, getting better is through a lot of like listening to what's current, you know, like when I was assisting George and he wanted me to do some mock-ups. So I wouldn't listen to mock-ups. I would listen to like if it was a thing, we did a mock-up to a concerto. So I listened to concertos, you know, on Spotify and see like, oh, how does a real orchestra sound like, you know? And then now I'm like, but I really like the style of like the show, The Handmaid's Tale. So I did a short film that, that was in that style. So I really listened to um, a lot of tracks from that album and I analyzed them. And I think I started just trying to play around with like effects and whatever to to try and mimic what I was hearing. So there's a lot of like trial and error, just trying different stuff and definitely improving on production skills, whether it's like watching YouTube videos or even even talking to friends that are, you know, more into production than you are. That was helpful for me. Like luckily all of my friends are nerds. So that's great. You mentioned earlier as well that, you know, all these different gigs will have different styles or different genres, but they also often will have different directors and different producers. So it's not just composition or production skill. There's also the kind of people aspect. So how do you go about establishing that and making it so that you're delivering what they want? I think that every time I go into a project, I have to think of it as like, okay, this is a is a blank slate you know so I'm just listening I'm just here to like listen to the director or the producer whoever I'm talking to and try to figure out what they really want because if I'm going to a gig thinking like I want to score this in this style then it's not gonna work out because that's not what they want and then there's a lot of like uh, kind of a, a psychological stuff you know like every person has their own language and terminology so i had in i was in different gigs where like the same terminology meant something completely different to the director so you just kind of have to be very open-minded and really listen to what they're telling you you know because you can't just say like oh, oh i did tension this way in my previous gig so i'm gonna put it the same here you can if that's what they want but maybe don't right away, you know? I'll give you an example. So, like, there's an indie film that I did called Me, Little Me. It premiered in South By last year. Yes, last year. And it's a very, like, personal story to the director about, like, uh, eating disorders and dealing with, like, anxiety and relapse and all of that. And she had me write, like, what she called it scratch tracks where... Basically, it's like she just wanted ideas of or thematic materials so she could like edit the film with them. So like she showed me a very, very rough, you know, footage and then just had me write some stuff. One of the feelings that she wanted me to write was like uh, tension and another one was happiness. And through a lot of conversation and also listening to like the different examples that she gave me and nothing was you can point out and say oh she wants that because every example she gave me was very different so you have to figure out okay what what's in this that she actually like you know and I learned that tension for her was white noise 
that just grows. So I have a track in that one of my cues in that film is like uh, 60 seconds of white noise starting very, very soft and just increasing, like crescendoing over 60 seconds. And that's what she wanted, you know. Would I have done it on my own for my free time and my free al- in my album? No. But it was like perfect for that film. On the other hand, a different film that I did uh, for Netflix, uh, The Dream Life of Georgie Stone, the director also said she wants tension. That's a completely different story. And tension for her, again, after a lot, a lot, a lot of conversation, was a repetitive note on the piano, like da 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 da, but that they change slowly over time. So it's like, you know, you do, you do like Remy, 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 Do, Mi, Remy, you know, Fa, blah, blah, blah. So I, I don't have perfect pitch, so I'm very sorry <laughs> if this was painful to anyone. And um, so very, very, very different, you know, because to me, that's not tension, but that was to her, you know. So I had to like adjust. Like, it doesn't matter what it is to me. It's what it is to her and to the character or the subject. Yeah. And that seems to be the ultimate skill, right, as a film composer, to be able to kind of read into that and deliver that exact thing. Exactly. Yeah. Big time. Mm -hmm. And do you learn that through gigs, just like earlier? Or is that does that come through something else? I think you definitely learn that through gigs. I think also... It could be a personality trait because I think you could be so full of yourself that you are not open-minded <laughs> to listen to other people. So then in that case, you're fucked. <laughs> 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 Sorry. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I definitely think that if, even if you do have that mindset at first, then you get humbled because then it's hard to work with you or people maybe don't want to work with you and you have to learn how to develop those people skills. It's definitely beneficial if you already have certain people skills when you start the job. But again, every person is different, you know, like if you work with a very bro-y person and you're not bro-y, then I don't know, maybe you won't gel, but you do have to find like a common ground so you can at least have a good time working together. I feel like a lot of this business is like a personality-based sort of a, you know, ordeal. Because like you can have a really good demo reel and then you get to the interview phase and they're like, wow, I hated this person. (laughs) That they won't want to work with you. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You could be the best composer in the world, but if you don't get along, then it's probably not going to work. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And like, you don't have to be best friends with everybody. There's a lot of like shit people in here, but like, (laughs) you gotta sell yourself in a way that is appealing to the client or the person interviewing you, or at least you gotta be able to get along with them for the, you know, the half an hour, you gotta have a phone call or three hours of a sporting session or whatever, you know, and then you can be a dick. That's fine. (laughs) Just for three hours, just, just. Put it aside. (laughs) (laughs) So a question that I have for you is uh, recording this in June. And this is, you know, people have just graduated. Berkeley students have just graduated. And 900,000 of them are about to move to L.A. And 
it's it's this interesting thing where they all get there and then it's like survival mode essentially it's like oh my god i'm in la ah what do i do there's so much i'm screwed like right from day one they feel like they're screwed what do you tell them to make it so they can get through that kind of initial fear and that initial phase i think i mean i'm not gonna lie to them and say like oh it's gonna be great no it's (laughs) gonna be really fucking difficult so like be fucking prepared you know Mm. I would say know your financial situation. So like if you get help, then it's going to be easier. You can do those free internships and you won't necessarily have the fear of like, what do I eat for dinner? But if you don't have that and you want to do free internships because you meet people like that, you might learn. Find a side hustle, like even if you have to be a music uh, teacher and even if you you hate, not that music teaching is bad. Music teaching is wonderful. We need good teachers, but like you might hate that. So find out what you can do. The approach that I had, which in a way was like, I think what helped me just keep navigating this and, you know, the, the insane anxiety that comes with like moving to LA is that when I moved to the States, I was in a student visa. And then they give you like an um, optional training visa for one year. OPT. Yeah, thank you. So that you get that for like one year after you graduate. And then if you prove yourself, you can get the artist visa. So I just did anything that I can to prove myself to get the artist visa. But then when you get the artist visa, it's not like it's not like you're fine and dandy for the rest of your life. The artist visa is just for three years, but it's actually two years and then you got to apply in the third year and you have to show that you've done stuff. So I just kept like, you know, busting my ass and constantly thinking of like, I have to prove myself so I can stay here. So I think my advice to everybody is being that mindset, even if you're, you know, a citizen, think about it as, as like my staying in this place depends on how much I bust my ass and try and, and hustle, you know? So like, don't feel comfortable like ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, maybe when you're retired, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> Until then, <laughs> don't be comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> and a question that I ask everybody, and you've already heard this one before, and I ask it on every episode is when you're first starting out, whatever starting point that is for you, how did you define success and how has that definition changed over time? And what is that definition now? Mm, 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 mm. Okay. Lovely question. So I, I think when I decided that I want to do this route, uh, because I'm a planner, then I had this like, you know, have a 10 year plan. Like I graduate Berkeley and then I go to LA and then I somehow get to work with Hans Zimmer and then I work with him on the next Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> You know, and like I did certain aspects out of this plan, like I did, you know, the uh, graduating Berkeley and I moved to L.A. And then I additional orchestrated a Pirates of the Caribbean show for Disneyland Japan. So I do have a score at home that says Hans Zimmer, Tim Williams, and then Amit Mekoen. <laughs> so it's like, OK, that's pretty cool. And then I, I was like, okay, that's I'm I'm doomed because I have no other plans, you know. Like, <laughs> like I succeeded, I peaked. <laughs> but I, I I think a personal goal for me has always been to like, because uh, you know my mom has like sacrificed so much from her life, so I would have opportunity 
And like, you know, we sold an apartment that we had and we used that money so I can pay for the rest of Berkeley. Like for a time when I was in high school, we actually shared a bedroom so we can live in like Tel Aviv. That's a very expensive city. So I would be close to school and she would be close to work. So she did a lot of sacrifice. So my personal goal in life is to be able to take care of her and buy her like a house or something, you know, when she's older. Or even now if I had the money, but, you know. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But I was thinking about that recently. And I think that means to me that, like, I'm not successful until I do that. And I don't know when I'll be able to do that. So in the meantime, I think right now, success to me is being on demand, you know. Because I always hustled to get gigs, And I think it would mean so much to me if people come to me and say, like, I heard your music and I loved it and I would love to work with you. Also because you're a great person. But, um, you know, (laughs) I think that would just mean a lot. And then I'd feel like I did something good, you know, like with my hustling and, and the way I write my music or whatever. But it doesn't stop. It's not like I would you would do a gig and be like, okay. I'm done. I've like I've personally never met like a composer that did one film they were super happy about and they were like, cool, I'm ready to retire. Yeah, like totally. Right. So I feel like at least the being on demand is just something that would keep me working, you know, and like I wanna I wanna do everything. I wanna do all the styles and all the genres. I wanna do, you know, film, TV, games even. Like I don't I don't care, like anything. But it would be nice if somebody approaches me. <laughs> if you're out there. dm me (laughs) well speaking of dming you where can people find you right uh, that um i am on instagram (laughs) not very active but i'm there i have a facebook but i don't really approve people so yeah (laughs) i don't know just instagram instagram but if you want to listen to some music then definitely spotify is that all under a meet me cohen Yes, yes. Instagram is Amit Mekorn Music. No, composer, composer. Yes, <laughs> I was so original. <laughs> really original. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. This was lovely. Yeah, thank you. That was really fun. That's the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening as always. And considering I work in the world of video game, music, and sound, and so many people are always asking me, how they break into that field, I have a newsletter set up for you. So if you want to learn how to make music and sound effects for video games and actually be paid to do it, just go to bit.ly forward slash soundbizpod. Sound B-I-Z pod. And that newsletter will set you up with two free courses and a bunch of free ebooks and even sound effects that'll get you set up and teach you how to work in the world of video game music and sound. Thanks so much. I'll see you next time. And if you're looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to, this podcast is actually a part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. So if you want to check those out, hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org. 